Good evening, Nubian gods and goddesses. T.B. Wahid in the living room with you this evening. Black living room talk. We left off with the gatherings, the first chapter. And the author was talking about how he was looking with awe at the African-American men and women that he saw and they were middle class and he was just stunned I guess you know like he was in Atlanta and you know Atlanta has been known to be the hub of black success and black businesses and black you know black entrepreneurship um, professionals they called them they used to call them buppies you know back in the 80s and the early 90s um, so let's I want to get right into this you know and start where I left off and this is the first chapter of the gathering still from the racist mind by Raviel S. Ezekiel He said, I phoned several of the people I had previously talked to long distance. The first was evasive, but the second, an elderly leader named James Venable, told me to come on over. I bought maps and went looking for him. The village of Stone Mountain showed up okay some 10 miles east of Atlanta and at the door and at the foot, I mean, of a massive block of granite rising abruptly from the plain, Stone Mountain itself. Finding Venable's house took a great deal longer. His directions didn't correspond to landmarks I could find. But after exploration, I found the street and the right number. An old gray wooden farmhouse stood far in the back of a huge lot. No one answered the door. No one seemed to be about. I waited an hour in the in the silent empty yard beneath the huge pecan trees, the quiet afternoon sky. Then, morose and lonely, I drove to the little motel at the edge of Atlanta. I called Judy, my old student, and we arranged to have breakfast in the morning. After a depressed supper, I drove back to Venable's house. I was getting nowhere. It was probably a waste of time to drive back out, but what else was there to do? The miles of ticky-tack did not cheer me up, nor the deepening dusk. Venable was in. He led me from the door into a kitchen filled with steam. Four great cauldrons were bubbling on the stove. He was preparing soup for the rally, he told me. Venable and the house were both old. The house recalled those of my hometown, an aging country home, with stacks of old newspapers, old paper bags, scraps of this and that against the ancient wood. Cats wandered about. Venable talked at length. He didn't especially understand who I was, but he wanted to teach me 
clan lore. He gave me old newspapers from his branch of the clan. He had been its national leader for many years. He went upstairs and got me a copy of the handbook with rules for initiation to the first degree. There seemed to be successive degrees, as in Freemasonry. The handbook was known as the Chloran. The Chloran listed the clan's labels. The local cell is called a clavern. Its head is the exalted cyclops. Officers below the cyclops included the clayliff, the clockard, and the clud, the cligrap, the clad, the cleobee, the clexter, and the clorago. The national head of a clan, Venable told me, is known as an imperial wizard. A state director is a grand dragon. Okay. Wow. <sighs> Venable talked about how things had been in the olden days. Great crowds used to come to rallies, he said. Great great numbers to parades. There used to be 10,000 at the Labor Day rally, he said. There was much secret lore and special ways. You could always find another Klansman. When you pulled up to a gas station in a strange town, you would ask the attendant, Do you know Mr. Ayak? Ayak stood for, Are you a Klansman? The attendant would answer, Well, I know Mr. Akia. And Ikea stood for a clansman I am. My comment. Talk about being on code. Venable's stories went on and on. He talked about huge cavalcades of clan cars roaring through the black sections. Nigger town. To keep the black people, niggers, in line. He talked about internal clan politics. He talked about ceremonies, rituals, and fellowships. The clan as a fraternal order. He seemed close to senility. It was getting dark and I wondered how I was going to find the rally ground the next day. Where should I park? Venable said we should drive down right then so he could show me the way. We drove through town toward the mountain to a huge metal at its foot. I saw little knots of men by small fires. We walked to a fire and met Dave Holland, a young leader who was organizing the rally and two of his lieutenants. I walked across to four young men who leaned on a truck. They were hesitant and careful, but soon got interested in talking. I talked at length with two of them. They were friends, trying to keep a North Carolina clan alive after the arrest of its leader, worried about how to do that work without seeming to try to take over the group. Both were 22 years old. Both came from blue-collar families. They believed in the Aryan Jesus, the Aryan Israelites. Men were setting up their sleeping bags around the fires. People had driven in from a distance. It felt like a camping trip. 
a kid's game. Later, I talked more with Venable at the house, wrote some field notes in my motel room, and slept. Saturday morning was cold with light rain. I had breakfasted with my former student, who wanted to join me in a brief morning reconnaissance. Raised in Chicago, Jewish, very thoughtful and very bright, Judy has lived in the South for some time, and I value her reactions. Back at the rally field, we saw flags snapping in the wind. Masses of red flags, red flags, lined the great stage that had been erected at the far edge of the meadow. Flags flew from many of the dozens of vans and trucks that had by now accumulated. There were rattlesnake, don't tread on me flags. Nazi battle flags with swastikas and many more reb flags. We walked through the meadow Additional vehicles arrived steadily. At four or five places, wooden booths set up beneath tents held books, buttons, and stickers for sale. White by birth, southern by the grace of God, praise God for AIDS. Mm. Judy chatted with an older woman who talked of her own childhood in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. I listened to the conversations. I looked at the mass of Confederate flags up at the speaker stand. The racist had taken over the handsome symbol. I listened to the lively country western music coming over the loudspeaker. I started to be able to understand the words and the lyrics. Again and again, the lyrics used the word nigger. They had their own music, their own songs, and and they were getting joy by being able to say, nigger out loud I drove Judy back to the city she talked about her work in nearby towns with country people they are independent she said they are warm when they have accepted you they are cautious defensive and secretive afraid of being patronized by city people this crowd at the rally ground has seemed familiar to her My own mood was dark. I was getting a headache and feeling the strain. It is important. It is important for my goal to let a real sense of the stranger come into me. Not to block it or distort it. At the same time, I need to keep my own sense of myself. It would be less effort just to reject the stranger, but I would gain no understanding. I thanked Judy and ate lunch. Wool socks made my feet warmer and I was happier. I returned to the rally field. The rain was lightning. Knots of men spread across the meadow. I walked past conversations. What I can't understand, any white woman, I can look at any white woman, no matter how ugly looking she is, and I can find something to admire. But what I can't understand, how anyone can take some bush monkey, some ape, and crown her Miss Mississippi. The man talking was a squat creature from Galveston. What is the worst to see a couple 
to see some white woman and some black man. Ugh. It just turns my stomach. They don't they don't tell you, Trotsky. His real name was Bernstein. He was a native New York Jew. They don't tell you about the 60 million white Christians the Russians killed. I'm going back a little bit. The Bolshevik Jews created the Russian Revolution. They don't tell you, Trotsky. His real name was Bernstein. He was a New York Jew. They don't tell you the three men who made the Russian Revolution. They were in New York. They were trained in sabotage and revolution by a team of rabbis. The Jew is the seed of Cain. The Canaanite Jews are the children of the serpent. Talmud is their holy book, and I don't even have to tell you about the cold Nidre. As I, mis- as I understand it, a man could go out and lie and cheat all the rest of the year. So the comments went. So the conversations flowed. The good folk took comfort as they do with these meetings, passing tidbits on to one another, having their wisdom confirmed. I soon found myself alongside a cluster engaged in picture taking. Another favorite pastime, souvenir photos of oneself in uniform or robe at the gathering. A tall fellow aimed his camera at two of the security guards. Young men posed side by side in black t-shirts and black boots. Clan logo on the t-shirts. Arms raised in Hitler's salute. The guard nearest me, a young man with short hair and blue eyes, asked me to be in the picture with him. I thought useful conversation might result and went to stand next to him. He leaned close to me and said, Hey, are you kosherish? I was surprised. What? I asked. Excuse me? You wouldn't happen to be Jewish, would you? He asked. Well, yes, I said. I do happen to be Jewish. Out! He cried, out the gate, let's go. Are you serious? I asked. The older, lean, taller man who had been taking the picture said to him, Wait, Arthur, I know that. That's why I said you would want the picture to throw darts at. It's all right. Venable brought him in last night. We'll see. Arthur Prone said grimly and stalked off to see Dave Holland, the lean man, Lenny, and I waited side by side. It was a longish wait. The young man returned, very put out. Lenny said, it's all right. Young Arthur yelled back toward Holland. You're asking for some mighty hard decisions. Arthur stared at me. He ground his jaw. He looked hard into my face and said, I don't give a damn for kikes, he said. Keep the dream alive. Kill a Jew. Keep Hitler's dream alive. Hatred hardened his voice. His eyes blazed. There was no way to communicate. I turned and walked off. I was not going to get into a macho contest. 
I paced around much agitated. He followed me with his eyes constantly. My stomach was rolling. I walked over to one of the guys from North Carolina who stood by his truck and spoke of what had just happened. That fellow said, he doesn't mean anything personal. Well, I said, I am here to learn. I don't like upsetting the man. I thought it was obvious I was a Jew. You're not an Orthodox Jew, are you? The North North Carolinian youth asked. When I said no, he went on. Well then, I take it you're here in a professional capacity, not as representing Jews. If you were here that way, I might have problems. I walked about for 10 or 20 minutes. The incident raised problems for me. As a thin and nervous child, I had learned with great difficulty the necessity of standing up to intimidation. At the same time, I truly hate rudeness, and I felt that Arthur had a right to be startled that an agent of the Archfiend had wandered into his gathering. I needed for my dignity to confront him. I felt that I needed, at the same time, to acknowledge his right to his own responses. These things had to be done, and perhaps good would come of it. I walked back up to Arthur, who had been eyeing me steadily. I stood in front of him. I told him that, speaking as one man to another, it had not been my intention to upset him. I looked squarely at him. I told you what I mean, he said. I don't like a kike. He stared at me. I have no use for a Jew. Keep Hitler's dream alive. Kill a Jew. He was still trying to provoke me. He said again that he had no use for a Jew. I said, well, that's you. I had already told him I was studying the movement. I now said truthfully, that I would like to hear more about what he was saying. That this wasn't the time or place, but if it were, I would want to hear more about this. He said, if it were the time and the place, I would show you. That's you, I said in a level voice. I walked off. All right, that was the second part of The Gatherings from The Racist Mind by Raphael Ezekiel. The next time I read, we will be getting into more about that conversation that he has with this, this, this young man who says he doesn't like Jews, that he doesn't like a, he don't like a kike. You know, um, I've, I believe that the author in his studies handled this to the best of his ability because he's not trying to lose his demeanor while he is conducting his research. He's not trying to be to, to get emotional and he's not trying to respond back in the way that he knows that they 
want him to respond because he's trying to get this story out. Um, I'm just going to go a little bit further right here. He said, I realize now, some years later, and after much more interaction, that I must have been conspicuous since my first appearance. I have I had felt rather casual strolling among the folk, nodding and saying howdy now and then. I was dressed in no particular manner. I had supposed I seemed out of place, but not especially noteworthy. I much misunderstood. I now can see the amount of fear in which these people live and their belief that a Jewish power base was out to endanger them. There had undoubtedly been bits of gossip following me all morning and afternoon as I walked about. The incident with Arthur ignited that tender, a strange few hours, harmless, deeply frightening, and deeply educational, followed. Okay, so he's, we're going to get back into it. And that will be the third part of the gathering. The gatherings. He's going to start talking about how he's experiencing the tentacles of hostility. So until the next time, my Nubian guys and goddesses, we are getting into the racist mind. We're going to come out with a much better understanding. I am T.B. Wahid, Black Neighborhood Room Talk. Peace.